Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen with us here at Gospel Way as we seek to find rest in Christ. Please know that this is supplemental and does not replace your local church or the pastor that God has given to shepherd your soul. But it is our prayer that God will use these resources to bless you and point you to Jesus. Things tonight and looking at what the purpose of good works, the purpose of any works that we do as a Christian, like I said, it kind of forces us into looking and understanding the judgment seat of Christ because for many of us, our view is what we do after salvation goes towards the judgment seat of Christ. It is, will we judge for what we do, good or bad, after we are saved? And that's the reason that we do good works is we do good works so that we don't stand before the judgment empty-handed. And we don't do bad works so we don't have everything burnt up at the judgment seat. At least that's the understanding that we have been given, this understanding that I have had of the judgment seat of Christ. The views that I have heard, and some others may come to your own minds, and let me go ahead and say this before I even really get started. This isn't something that you have to agree with what I'm saying tonight because it is my understanding and the understanding that I have been given from the, even our confession of the judgment. If you read the confession, it states that there will be a judgment and it basically leaves it at that, but states that that judgment is to vindicate and validate the work of Christ in the life of his saints. And that's kind of what we'll get into in understanding why we have good works in our lives as believers. Some of the understandings that we have been given of the judgment seat of Christ is, number one, that we will all go to heaven and we will stand before a big screen and everything that we have ever done will be shown on this big screen and then we'll be judged on whether what we did was good or bad, whether our intentions were good or evil. I've also heard it put that God will take all of our works and he will put them in a big lump on a conveyor belt and it will roll through the fire and on the other side will come out either wood, hay, and stubble or gold, silver, and precious stones. That's some of the views that I have heard of the judgment seat. What we can all agree on, irregardless, is that there will be a judgment and we know this because of Scripture. In the Old Testament, we find at least two places where we see the judgment talked about. That's in Daniel chapter number 7 and in Joel chapter number 3. In the New Testament, we also find places where a judgment is told of, specifically in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, and in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus references a judgment. Some of these will come to mind as you think through this. Like Jesus said that any idle word that we speak will be taken into account at the day of judgment. He also speaks of a day of judgment where the people will be brought together and there will be a separation of the sheep from the goats. Further, in the book of Revelation, as was mentioned, John mentions a judgment in Revelation chapter number 20 and verse 18, as well as mentioning a judgment in chapter number 20. 
the majority of the place where we find the idea of a judgment is in the books of Paul. Specifically, Romans chapter 14 and verse number 10 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10. So I'm going to read some of these texts so we can hopefully get a rounded idea of what we're looking towards at the end of time. Revelation chapter number 11 and verse number 18 reads this way. It says, And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and unto the saints, and them that fear thy name, both great and small. So we have that text from the book of Revelation that speaks of a judgment where wrath will be poured, people will be judged, and reward will be given. More commonly known to most who have read the scriptures, Romans chapter number 14 and verse number 10 reads, Why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set thy brother at naught? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul there was speaking to this feud that was going on at the church of Rome. And it's the same one, shocker, that was going on at the church at Corinth. And at the church in Galatia, it was a common problem that people were arguing about things, about spiritual versus unspiritual, about you should be doing this versus you should be doing that. And Paul says, why are you judging your brother? Why are you setting your brother lower than you? That we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10, Paul again speaking to these types of things says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And then we come to the text that many people think of when they think of the judgment. Real quickly, I'm going to read this entire text, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. Verse number 5, starting there and going down through the almost the remaining of the chapter, Paul says, Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers whom ye believe, even as the Lord gave to every man. Paul is confronting an argument going on here at Corinth that was between people and some were saying, hey, I am of Peter and some were saying, I am of Apollos and some were saying, I'm of Paul and some were saying, well, I've got you all beat because I'm of Christ. So there was this division that Paul was addressing. And he says, who are any of these people but servants of the Lord? Verse 6, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Paul is drawing their focus off of man and pointing it to where it should be. 
Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. They're the means that God uses. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Yea, are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. It says you're what God is growing. You're what God is building. We are laborers together with God. We are the means by which he is doing his work. Verse 10, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. So Paul says, I have laid the foundation. Everybody else who comes after me will be building on this foundation. So be careful what you use, how you build on this foundation of Christ. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ. Paul says, I have laid the foundation. The foundation is Christ. So every man take heed to how you build on Christ. Now, if any man build on this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every works, man's work shall be made manifest. So if you're following along with me tonight, verse number 12 says, Now, if any man build on this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. So Paul here is saying there's a foundation been set and you, these are different people coming and they're using different material to build on the foundation, correct? If any man build on this foundation and he calls out gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. And if you know anything about literature, you know that good material will not get blown over by a wolf. Bad material will get blown over by a wolf. And the same goes for good and bad material when you're speaking spiritually. That was a joke, just so everybody knows. I was, I was making light of that. So we have people here who are building upon a foundation. Verse 13, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So we see here people doing things, building upon things in the church. And they're using different types of material. Verse 13, Paul seems to indicate that time will tell whether or not what you built was good or bad. The day shall declare it. Basically, time will tell. And the fires of life, the fires of what God is doing in the world is going to try what is done. There is a reason that there is a, is it a crystal cathedral in California that is basically no longer existing because that crystal cathedral, the day showed forth. There is a big building in Texas 
with a guy who smiles a lot and there's a globe that turns back behind him, that one day we can pretty confidently say the day will show forth that it was not a good building. It wasn't a good product. It was wood, hay, and stubble rather than gold, silver, and precious stones. And what Paul is really doing here is he's calling us to what he has said previously when he says that the foundation of the church is built upon the prophets and the apostles. If we're not building upon the doctrine of the prophets and the apostles, then what we're building upon, the material that we're using, is going to be burned up. That's the reason that, unfortunately, you can ride through places and see churches selling their buildings and shutting down and places where churches are overgrown and falling apart and other places in Europe where churches are upheld as wonderful places of architecture, but there's no meeting there because time has shown that what was being built in those churches has burned up. It's gone. It meant nothing. So the case that I make with this text is that this isn't talking about a judgment seat, which is where everybody typically talks about good works at the judgment seat. I don't believe this text is talking about that because there seems to be no indication that this is placed anywhere in the future other than seeing that things will be burned up or that they won't, physically speaking. To kind of back up a little bit, There's a distinction that is often made between a Bema seat and a great white throne. This distinction is a relatively new distinction. And what is said is that the Bema seat is the place where there will be a judgment like someone running a race. That you run a race and that the judgment for running the race will be done at a Bema seat. And then a great white throne will be a place where judgment is done over those who are unsaved. The only problem with the understanding of the Bema seat in this way is this non-scripture. The only two places that we find that word Bema or judgment seat of Christ is in Matthew chapter number 27 and verse 19. And in Acts chapter 18 and verse number 12. To kind of give you an idea of what is said in those verses, in Matthew chapter 27, Jesus stands before the judgment seat of Pilate. The word here is Bema seat of Pilate. If you know the story, Jesus was not standing there to be rewarded for what he had done. This was a judgment of what people were saying about him, whether or not he was going to live or whether he was going to die. Paul also, in Acts chapter number 18, stands before the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Galileo. He wasn't again there to be rewarded. He was making a case for why he should not be held in prison. So we have these ideas of a Bema seat that we've been given where it's a judgment of our works. But scripturally speaking, this doesn't seem to be the case. What I believe scripture says is that there is not two judgments, but there is one judgment that will happen at the end of time. And again, this can be something that you disagree with me on. That's 100% fine. But as we go through this, I am going to make a case for what works, how works in the believer's life apply 
And I do feel like there's a little bit deeper of a biblical basis for that than some of the mystery that we find in the judgment seat. So getting all that out of the way, what does the scripture speak about the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ? What is the purpose of the final judgment altogether? Why is there a final judgment at all? The purpose of the judgment is seen in Scripture, specifically in Matthew chapter number 12 and verse 36, as a judgment according to works rather than a judgment of or for works. If you read down through Scripture, you'll see that word according used when it's talking about the judgment. Matthew chapter 12 is where I had mentioned where Jesus says that that we will give an account of every deed and every idle word in the day of judgment. Paul says that it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. Even in Romans chapter number 14 and in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, we saw that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will be judged according to what we have done, whether it be good or bad. That's what he says there in 2 Corinthians 5.10. That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. This brings up an interesting question for especially those of us who believe that Christ completely paid our debt. If Christ has paid all of our debt, if our sin debt is no longer there, if when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, what bad are we being judged for? If we believe that Christ has took upon all of the wrath for our sin, what wrath is left? If he has taken upon himself all of the curse, what curse is left? And that's the real reason I believe there's the distinction in Scripture of four works and according to works. There will be, for those who are unbelieving, a time and a place where their works will be held against them. They will be judged for what they did because they denied the work of Christ on their behalf. Kind of like we talked last week where faith is us grabbing hold of Christ's work on our behalf. If we push away Christ's work, what are we left standing with? But our own works. We are standing there on our own self-sufficiency, on our own righteousness. And if we are coming to God with our own righteousness, we will find out the same thing that Cain found out when he brought his own righteousness. As a matter of fact, the book of Isaiah tells us that even our good works are as filthy rags. So if you would like to be judged for even your good works... They're not worth being judged. The point that we gather from Scripture 
is that we must take our justification from Christ and this last judgment and put them both together. And here's the case that I want to make for what works have to do with in the life of a believer. If we understand that works in the life of an unbeliever are going to be judged to basically vindicate the judgment that's going to be put down, I believe that we can make the case that the works in the life of a believer vindicate the one who laid his life down. And we'll get into some scripture that speaks about that. Romans chapter number 6, we see Paul do something interesting, speaking of baptism and the resurrection of Christ. In Colossians chapter number 1, Paul says that Christ is the body, the head of the body of the church. And he says that Christ, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that he might have all preeminence over those who are asleep. Romans chapter number 8, he says that they, Christ is the first fruits of those who have gone to sleep. And second, or 1 Corinthians 15, 20 talks about Christ being the first fruits of his brethren. But in Romans chapter number 6, we read, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. So baptism is. Baptism shows us being buried in the death of Christ, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. So if I've not been clear up to this point, let me be clearer on what I'm trying to say. In Scripture, we understand that there is this already but not yet in the life of a believer, correct? We see places in the life of a believer where Paul, or even in the scriptures where Paul, talking about the life of the believer, says that we are justified. And in Romans chapter 8, he says that we have been glorified. I know most of you here, and you do not have glorified bodies, and you do not act in glorified ways. And I know this because I do not have a glorified body, and I do not act in glorified ways. But when God looks at us, he sees glorification as a done deal. Paul is explicit about that in chapter number 8 of the book of Romans. He says, you have been justified. You have been glorified. In the book of the Revelation, John says, I saw there many people, so many that he could not even number them of every tribe, tongue, and nation. So in the eyes of God, all this stuff is already done. It's already. But in time where we dwell, it is still, at least in a part of it, not yet. Our justification, we can have assurance that it is already done. But when we look at our life and see the indwelling sin, we also see a not yet We are 100% justified before God. When God sees us, he sees the imputed righteousness of Christ. 
But when I see you and when you see me, we don't always see the imputed righteousness of Christ in one another, correct? And again, if you say yes to that, then you just don't know people very well. Come hang out with me for a day. I will show you (laughs) that you don't always see the justification of Christ in me. We have this understanding in Scripture of already and not yet. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter number 5, we have Paul giving us, really, he's giving us hope. And this is even a text that we read oftentimes at funerals. It says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul says here, he says, We preach that Christ rose from the dead, but some of you are saying that Christ never rose from the dead. This doesn't make any sense, guys. Verse 13, But if there be no resurrection of the dead then is Christ not risen? Paul is making the case here that if there is going to be no resurrection of those who trust Christ, then Christ didn't really raise. Verse 14, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith also. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, Because we have testified of God that he has raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Paul is saying here, if Christ did not rise, and if there will not be a resurrection of the saints in the future, then everything that we have preached is worthless. As a matter of fact, we are liars. We are false witnesses of God. Verse 16, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. Paul, again, emphasizes what he has already said. If there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ did not raise. Remember that. That's going to be important as we're continuing down through here. Verse 17, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are in your sins. The reason that we emphasize the resurrection of Christ isn't just because we say that God kept his promise, that Jesus was God, so he raised again, but the resurrection had something specific attached to it. Paul puts so much emphasis on this that he says, if Christ did not resurrect, your faith is vain and you are in your sins. Verse 18, then they also which are asleep in Christ are perished. So he goes even farther and says, not only are you in your sins, but everybody who has died is gone. No hope. Verse 19, if in this life only we hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Paul is hanging his proverbial hat on the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then everything is garbage. Again, if there's no resurrection, let's all go home. There's no point. We're not going to see our lost, 
or our dead loved ones one day. We're not going to heaven when we die. None of this is going to happen because Christ was not raised. And Paul goes and explains why the resurrection was so important. Verse number 20, but now if Christ but now is Christ risen from the dead. So he says, just in case you're confused, Christ did rise and became the first fruits of them that slept. Was Christ the first person to resurrect from the dead in the scriptures? No. We have accounts. There's a boy that he raises up. Lazarus, he raises up. Throughout even the Old Testament, we see people who are raised from the dead. So when Paul says that he is the first fruits of them that slept, he's not talking about the first person to resurrect, correct? 21, for since by man came death, by man came also resurrection of the dead. So again, Paul is hinging resurrection of the dead on Christ being resurrected. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all be made alive. This is the point of the resurrection. Going back a little bit to where we're talking about faith. If you do not have faith, you are in Adam. In Adam, all die because Adam died. If you have grabbed hold of the work of Christ for you, then you have faith. And in Christ, all are alive. Why? Verse 22, because Christ is alive. Yes, So we see the argument that Paul's making here. Verse 23, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Verse 24, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. The reason that the resurrection is so important is because the resurrection is a validation. It's a vindication of the work of Christ. We have, and again, this is something that we try to emphasize here, but is oftentimes not emphasized enough in other places. We have an understanding of the work of Christ to be active and passive. He kept the law for us. He died for us. He paid the debt for us. There is this active and this passive work of Christ. Christ actively kept the law and he passively laid down his life. The resurrection was God saying he accepted the life and the death of Christ. God did not accept, from verse 22, Adam's life. Why? Because Adam sinned. Adam was given a command to keep the law of God. And he didn't do it. So anybody in Adam will die. Christ came. The second Adam is what Paul calls him. The second and final Adam. There'll never be another one. There'll never be a need for another one. And when he came, he kept the law perfectly And he paid the debt for your sin. So not only did he bring you back up to the level where Adam started, but he gave you what Adam could never obtain. Adam couldn't obtain a perfect life for you because he did not live a perfect life. 
even if he would have lived a perfect life after he sinned, there still could have been no hope for us. Because somebody who lived a perfect life had to pay the debt too. So everything hinges on the resurrection because the resurrection is God saying, I approve. Yes, this is right. Everything that you did, it was good. God has vindicated and validated the work of Christ on our behalf by the resurrection. That's why Paul continues to say here over and over that if there is no resurrection, we are doomed. Because if there is no resurrection, there is no validation. There's no vindication of Christ's work. Christ's work was worthless. God said no to the work of Christ. There is no payment for sin and there is no imputed righteousness if Christ failed. If Christ failed, he is still in a tomb somewhere. But because Christ is not failed and Christ has risen, we have an understanding that God has placed his stamp of approval on the work of Christ. Does that make sense? We understand the the need for the resurrection. So what in the world is Paul talking about here when he says that he became the first fruits? If the resurrection is the vindication of Christ's work, the approval of Christ's work, let me back up and say it this way. Had that ever happened before? Did Lazarus keep the law of God and pay the sin debt? So he died again, right? Did the boy in the buyer that he touches, did he keep the law and pay the sin debt? Who was the first one to pay the sin debt? It was Jesus Christ. His resurrection had a purpose behind it. And if you read through the New Testament, you're going to see things like we are the reward of Christ. Because Christ is vindicated, what he has been given is a people who believe. Read through the book of Romans, read through the book of Ephesians, read through the book of Galatians, read through any of the Pauline epistles, and you'll see Paul make this argument over and over that we have been given to Christ as the reward for what he did. That is how we are in Christ. We get there by belief. We get there by faith. But we are in Christ, and by being in Christ, we are his reward. Okay, so we're kind of, hopefully you're picking up what I'm getting ready to put down. If he's the first fruits, then whose vindication is coming after him? In the text, first fruits of them that slept. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. The judgment seat, to go back to that for a second, is not a place where we are going to be rewarded for what we did, except for the fact that we are going to be rewarded with Christ. Again, as you read through Scripture, you will see things like raised to eternal 
life. Raised to. That phrase, you'll find it. I promise you, as you read through the New Testament, you will begin to see this resurrection unto language. We are rewarded with Christ. The Levites in the Old Testament, they, didn't, they weren't given land. They were told Christ is your portion. Christ is your reward. For the believer, what you get out of this whole transaction, you get Christ. Yes, amen. To reference what we hear often in John 17, what is eternal life? To know Christ. Yes, this is what we get. This is our reward. Christ is our reward. We're not being judged for what we did wrong, and we're not being judged for what we did right. We are, be given, we are being given Christ because of what Christ did right. Yes. He is the first fruits. So, the argument that I would make for the judgment seat is at the end of time, there will be a judgment. Some will be raised, and again, you'll remember this language from the Apostle Paul. Some will be raised to corruption, and some will be raised to incorruption. You're being rewarded. You're being vindicated. Christ ultimately is being vindicated because those who are his are being raised to incorruption, eternal life. Those who are not his are being raised to corruption, death. So what's the purpose of our works here? If, if God is taking account of our works, just like we saw even in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. If our works are being burned up in the world or they're lasting in the world, let's go back. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. Verse number 11. Where was this stuff built? I'll give you a second to get there because I want to make sure everybody sees this with me. 1 Corinthians 3, verse number 11. What is, what is this stuff? What, are, what is our works being built on? On Jesus. Who, who is, for lack of a better way to say this, who's getting a reward for our works? Where are our bad works? They're gone. The reason that our works as a Christian life, are important. The reason that they play a role is because they are pointing to the foundation yes, of those works. Yes, that is why we live the life that we live. That is why we are called to look at the person of Christ. That is the reason that we are promised that that flows through us. The book of Ephesians, we are His workmanship created unto good works. The point of our works as Christians is to point to Christ that Christ may be vindicated by everything that he has done. Because whose works are they? They're his works. The reason that they're important is because he is using them for his means. That at the end of time, at the end of everything... The parable that's given where the master says to the servant, well done, thy good and faithful servant. The only person that has done anything well is the person yes, of Christ. Yes, 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 sir. Yes, sir. 
That is God's reward to his son. Everything that he is doing in you today is that on the last day, he is vindicated by what he has done. If we want to take language that is sometimes used about the judgment, the way that we could say this is that at the end of the day, the curtain will peel back and there will be a lot of stuff that was done in this world. Some of it's not good. God will look at that and he will say, that was not mine. Had nothing to do with it. The ones oftentimes who do those works, as a matter of fact, he says about them, Matthew, what have we done? We did all this stuff. He not only says he didn't know the works, but he says, I don't even know you. But what he will do is he will peel back everything and he will show all of the work that was done, that was built upon him, that he worked through his people. And we will see what he has accomplished. We, we, we use this language of a redemptive historical narrative as we read Scripture. We're reading Scripture to see the history of how God is performing redemption. <clears throat> the history points us to redemption, but it's also explaining to us how redemption came about. This doesn't change course when we get to the end of time. This doesn't even change course after the crucifixion of Christ. There will come a time when we will do the same thing with all of the works that have ever been done throughout history. And we will see how God has taken even our mess of a life. And he's accomplished his work. You will look theoretically at your own life just like we look at the life of Samson and see how God performed good out of the messed up, miserable life of Samson. How he did good, how he brought people to himself, how he redeemed his people. Think about it. All throughout the Old Testament, we see these sorry examples that point us forward to Christ. That's what you're going to see with your life. You're going to see a sorry example that God did a good work in and through. We don't often see that here. What we see now is the not yet. We see what's not been done. We see the failures. We see all the ones that call themselves Christians and are just acting stupid. We see that. What God sees is the already. And in that day, we will see the already. What we see not yet now, we will see already then. That's the purpose of works in the life of a believer. This might shock you. They're to point people to Christ. Yes, sir. Because they have all been justified by him. He is working them all in you, and he's working them all through you. We're not just, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, but we're, we're not just here so that, so that we can throw crowns at Jesus' feet. I challenge you to go read in the book of Revelation and come and tell me who actually throws crowns at Jesus' feet because it wasn't you. You weren't even in that part of the text. 
There's a whole ton of things that we have interposed onto the Scriptures because we think it made sense. When the Scriptures by themselves make plenty of sense, if they're just left alone and we don't try to interpose our own ideas and figure out the mysteries of God. The confidence that we can take away from this is that as we look at Christ, as we come together weekly, as we come together in immense the week, as God is doing things in our life, that he is working his plan through us. We are called to stir up the faith of others. We're called to stir up our own faith. We are called to do certain things. We're called to love one another. We are called not to fuss and judge one another. We're, we are called by Scripture. But all of the things that we are called to do all the imperatives of Scripture have to hinge upon the indicative of the gospel. They have to hang on Christ. Just like Christ said, all of the law hangs on you'll love God and you'll love your neighbor. All of the good that we do has to hang on the person of Christ. And that's the reason they matter. They matter because they point to Him. They point others to him. They point ourselves to him. And the reason this understanding matters is because when we do fail, when we do screw up, when we do sin, we can have the confidence that God has not only paid for that sin, but he is using that sin in his will, in his work to accomplish his means. What does Romans eight twenty eight say? For we know that all things work together for the good of them that love God that are called according to His purpose. We don't have to get strung out. We don't have to get stressed out. We don't have to look at the judgment seat of Christ as some kind of cosmic dental appointment that we just are stressing over for the rest of our life, hoping that we have enough to give back to Him when we understand That the point is that he gave everything to us. He's done everything for us. And we are able to enjoy what it means to be in Christ. Let's pray.